the Salt Church. If you're not awake, I know you are now, all right? Um, well, hey, uh, my name is Keith, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, you know what's funny? It's Mother's Day, right? And uh, we're preaching on Father Abraham today. I promise John is not a chauvinist. He's the one that schedules all the preaching, all right? It just randomly happened to be this way today. Um, but anyways, uh, as we talk about Abraham and faith today, uh, did you guys realize that everyone puts their faith in something? Uh, Tim Keller once said, everyone even worships something. Worship is simply this. We all pursue whatever we believe will give us worth. And so faith is this. It's simply placing our trust in what we believe will save us, make our life complete, and give us a value and a meaning and a purpose. Now, why does it matter what we place our faith in? Because here's the reality. When we put our faith in things that can't save us, it leaves us very anxious and very restless. Think about America. I would say the four things that Americans put their faith in the most are these. Approval, power, comfort, and control, right? We all do it. We put our faith in these things. And when you put your ultimate faith in these things, your life becomes extremely restless. Think about it. If you live for approval, you're not going to know how to handle rejection when it comes. And it will come. If you live for power, you're not going to know what to do with failure and defeat. And that will come into your life. If you live for comfort, you're not going to know how to handle suffering. And suffering will come to your life. And lastly, if you live for control, you're not going to know what to do with uncertainty. And everything in this life is uncertain. And so when we put our ultimate faith in these things, we become extremely restless. Analysts, psychologists, statistics are even saying today in America, people are more restless today than they have ever been in the history of our country, even though we have so much It reminds me of what the African Bishop Augustine said. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. See, only if we have faith like Abraham can we have a peace in suffering, can we have an insurance in uncertainty, and we can have the freedom to fail, and we can have an approval that's so great in our life that rejection won't destroy us. And so today we're going to see if you want to have a life of true greatness, we need to be like Abraham and we need to live by faith. Now, before we jump into the text, I would love if you guys would join me in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the book of Romans and this theme that we're justified by faith. And Jesus, we cry out to you today and we ask that you show us what faith is. You show us what faith is is not. Lord, that we could have a genuine faith in you that not only would save us and forgive us, but it would make us righteous and give us the strength, the attitude, and the hope to go forward trusting that you are good despite what we see in the world. So Lord, I pray this morning that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that your spirit would minister in a mighty way this morning. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so uh, let's look at Romans 4. Let's look at 13 through 15. 
And this is my first point. It's receiving the promise through believing, not through achieving. Paul writes this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law or obedience to the law or good works, but through the righteousness that comes through faith. For if it is the adherents of the law or those who try to obey the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. All right, so a little backstory, what Paul is talking about. First, we need to understand that the Bible, it's the single story of what went wrong with creation, what God did about it, and then how we receive redemption and salvation through what he has done. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the birds, the fish. He made humans as the pinnacle of his creation, made in the image of God. And there was intimacy and harmony with God in the Garden of Eden. No death perfect relationship. But the lie entered in through Satan, and the lie went like this. Life is better without God. Don't let God decide what's good and evil. You should be God. You should decide what's good and evil. So Adam and Eve believed this lie. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were exiled from the presence of God. And in that moment, death entered into creation. uh, Division entered into relationships. And this is why my back hurts this morning when I get out of bed, right? All of creation is unraveling. There's entropy in the world. But in this moment, God came to Adam and Eve and he made a promise. He promised this. He said, hey, even though you brought death into creation, I'm going to bring a savior through Eve, through this mother Eve. There we go. Mother's Day sermon. All right. Through Eve. And he is going to redeem creation. He is going to remove death. That's what I'm going to promise mankind. And so the story of the Bible follows this promise. It goes from Adam and Eve to their son, Seth, and then you get to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then you get to to Boaz and you get to Jesse and David all the way down to King Jesus. And so here in Romans, Paul is reminding his church, guys, remember Abraham. Remember the promise that God started and then ratified and continued with Abraham. And here's the three things that God promised Abraham. Number one, that he would give him an heir, that he would give him the land of Canaan or Israel, and that he would become the father of nations. And it says Abraham believed. He responded to these promises with faith. And so what is faith? It is trusting that God's promise will come true. It's taking God at his word. See, faith is about what we place our trust in. And we put our faith in whatever we think will give us the best life and eternity. That's what we're going to place our faith in. Whatever we think will give us the best life. I like what Hebrews 11.6 says about faith. It says, so faith is what we place our trust in. Sorry, Hebrews 11.6 says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so Salt Church, we don't come to Jesus for a better life. We come to Jesus because he is life and he gives us a new life in him. 
Now, I run into a lot of Christians, and when they think about faith, they think it's the amount of faith that matters. There's like varsity faith in these characters of the Bible, and then there's like us church people, and we like have like this JV faith, right? But when you hear the words of Jesus about faith, he said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, just a little bit, you will actually experience the impossible. Mountains, barriers will be moved in your life. And I like the question that Jesus always asked his disciples. He didn't say, how much faith do you have? He said, where is your faith? Or what are you putting your faith in? See, when it comes to faith, it's the object of our faith that matters the most, not the amount of faith that we have. Yes, we're going to grow in faith, but it's what we put our faith in that matters the most. Think of it like this. All right, there's two scenarios. There's two people walking besides a cliff. The first person, he's a bodybuilder. He's got like 2% body fat. He can do over 100 pull-ups. He has the best diet. He's completely strong, right? And imagine he's walking next to this cliff. He slips and he falls. And the only thing for him to grab onto is a little piece of sagebrush that can hold about 40 pounds. All right, that's scenario one. Now I want you to imagine scenario two. There's like this seven-year-old boy walking beside the cliff. He's chunky, right? He's seven. Uh, He can't even do one pull-up, slightly overweight, and his diet is literally Lucky Charms every day, all right? That's, That's all he eats. And he slips and falls off the cliff, but he reaches out, and there's this giant oak branch that can hold 600 pounds. What's the better scenario? One or two? And I would say the better outcome is the boy. Even though he is weak, he is still strong enough to grab onto something solid that can save him. See, it's the object of our faith that matters. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It matters how strong the branch is. So first we need to know Abraham honestly wasn't that impressive. He lied. He cheated. He had fears. He committed adultery. He made mistakes. But you know what he did? He didn't put faith in himself, either how good he was or how bad he was. He put his faith in God, and he continued to go forward trusting that God was good. And so I think the first point that Paul is making in this passage about faith is that God blessed Abraham because God is good. God didn't bless Abraham because Abraham was good. God blessed Abraham because Abraham believed that God was good. And the second point that Paul is making about faith, it's like being an heir. Think about an heir in a kingdom or your own family. How do they receive an inheritance? Do they achieve it or do they receive it? I want you to imagine I have some elderly neighbors and imagine I just start mowing their yard every, every week. I water all their flowers. I clean their house. I do everything for them. And then in his old age, I go up to my neighbor, Ken, and I'm like, hey, man, I see that you're getting sick you're dying, like, honestly, I feel like I deserve your inheritance. I think you should give it to me. Like, he would look at me and be like, bro, that's messed up. Like, no, you don't get my inheritance. I'm going to give it to my kids because you can't earn an inheritance, right? Now, on the flip side, I have three daughters. Imagine if one of my daughters came to me and said, dad, I cleaned my room. Can I be your kid now? Do you love me now? I'd be like, of course I love you. You're my kid. And if she came to me the next week and was like, Dad, I cleaned my room. I did everything right. Can I be your kid now? Can you call me daughter? I'd be like, stop trying to achieve my love and simply receive it. You are my kid. You are in. Trust that you are my daughter and I am your father. Believe in me. Receive the free gift. 
See, one of the biggest tests of the Christian faith is this. Do you really believe that God loves you and calls you his son or his daughter, not because of anything you have done, good or bad, but simply because God is good and he loves you? And if you can believe this about God, by faith, you stop trying to earn God's love and you receive it. And that will change everything in life. And the third point uh, argument Paul makes here is that Abraham wasn't saved by the law. See, Abraham was right with God, and he didn't even have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments came like a thousand years later with Moses. So the argument here then is, well, how could he be right with God without the Ten Commandments? And, you know, if he's right without the Ten Commandments, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? And Paul says something fascinating here that I had never caught before, but he says basically, the law came to turn sin into transgression. Now, sin and transgression are both sin, but they're different at the heart level. All right, uh, I want you guys to imagine Lucas Ness. He's a great hunter. He's out there bow hunting in the woods, and uh, he sees this giant fence that says, no trespassing, no hunters, private property, He knows it's wrong to cross that fence, right? But he hears that elk bugling over there, right? And he's like, honestly, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. He was a transgressor. He, He did the wrong thing, and he knew it was wrong. Now, sin can sometimes be different, right? Let's imagine Lucas is just walking through the woods, through the backcountry. He sees a little barbed wire fence, and he's like, you know, this might be private property, but it's not really marked well. I don't know. I I guess I'm going to go over here. He crosses the fence. Let's imagine it's private property. If Lucas gets caught, is he still going to get fined? Of course. He can't just say to the judge, I didn't know, man. Honestly, I didn't know. You know, I didn't know that law was real, so I don't think you should punish me. Then no, the judge is going to say, you are guilty, right? And so what I'm saying here, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is it was given to Israel. It was given to God's people to turn sin to transgression. See, the law takes sin and it reveals what's right and wrong about us on another level. And here's the truth. When you become a transgressor and you know you're doing wrong, the whole purpose of the law then was to say, man, I'm not just a sinner. I'm like a transgressor. I know these things are wrong, but I still do them. Man, I am so jacked up here in my heart. I need a savior. And so that was one of the reasons God gave the law, that the Jews would say, man, we are so messed up, guys. We need a savior. And so when Jesus showed up on the scene, they were supposed to be the first ones to say, praise God, we can't follow the law perfectly. We need a savior. Sadly, they were like, we don't need you. And in their stupidity, they rejected him. And so Paul shows us that this promise that God gave from the very beginning to undo death, restore this relationship with God, always rested on grace and faith, not on the law. Uh, Let's look at the text. Look at Romans 16 through 17. It says this. That is why it depends on faith, not the law, in order that the promise God gave may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that's the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life 
to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so right here, Paul is is basically answering the question, why does this salvation depend on faith? And first of all, it's because we can't save ourselves, but he can. We can't forgive ourselves of our sin, but he can. We can't make ourselves righteous, but he can. We can't give ourselves a purpose in life, but he can give it to us. We can't become valuable by our works in this life, but he can give it to us. I like to think of salvation like Thor's hammer. It's just sitting on your chest, right? And no matter what you do, you can't lift it off. It's impossible, right? But for God, honestly, it's really easy. He comes and takes that weight of sin off of you and forgives you. It's something that you could never do. And for God, honestly, it's easy, right? See, God came to Abraham in his old age, him and his wife, and he said to him and Sarah, hey, you're almost dead from old age, but I'm gonna perform a miracle. Your 80-year-old wife will get pregnant and she's gonna give birth to a son. I love that the text says God calls into existence things that do not exist. God did this with creation, He did this with Abraham. He did this with the Virgin Mary. He did this with the resurrection. And he does it with us. See, God operates in the realm of the impossible. We don't. This is why we place our faith in him. He can do the impossible. We can't. He is infinite. And we are finite. Now, some of us might balk at this miracle talk and say, really, Keith? Miracles? Come on, this is superstition. Like Thomas Jefferson, he loved the Bible, but he just couldn't believe that God would perform miracles. So he tore all those pages out of the Bible. And now I'm sure he, you know, he had to stand before God someday and he's probably like, man, I'm such an idiot, right? And so here, I want to bring some clarity to why we should be able to believe in miracles, okay? Uh, you know, in America, we like to say we're enlightened people. Miracles, it's just superstition. But I want to just say that miracles make perfect sense for God, I want you guys to think of like the most famous painting there is, the Mona Lisa, right? And Leonardo da Vinci, I believe, was the painter of this, okay? And so I want you to imagine he's working on this painting, and I want you to imagine one of his friends or enemies comes up to him and accidentally just sneezes on the painting, all right? I think they made a movie about this, but someone sneezes on the painting, and uh, if Leonardo looked at the painting, the Mona Lisa, and she is bound by the canvas and the laws of this painting, and he looked at her and said, Mona, I think you need to fix this painting yourself. Like, that would be silly. That would honestly be dumb. That, like, makes no sense at all, right? But for Leonardo to step in and fix his own creation because he's not bound by the laws of the canvas makes perfect sense. See, miracles make sense because God is not bound by what we are bound by. He's the painter. His creation is the canvas. And for him to restore his painting to how it's supposed to be makes perfect sense. He's honestly not breaking any laws of nature. And so a miracle is simply God restoring his creation, his painting to how it's supposed to be. And this this miracle birth that happened with Isaac was God restoring creation. And this is why Jesus was always doing miracles. He had this massive healing ministry. The lame, the sick, the blind were always coming to Jesus and he was healing them. And basically what he was doing was saying, I didn't make my creation like this. This wasn't my intention. And I'm gonna restore these things to how they're supposed to be. And so when God brought many of his saviors through the story of the Bible, from Samuel to Samson to Isaac to John the Baptist to Jesus, they were often miracle births. And what Paul is saying here that's so amazing, he's saying, in your new birth, 
you being born again as a Christian was also a miracle done by God for you. See, it wasn't moral change. It wasn't behavior modification that caused you to be born again. It was God breaking into your story through faith to begin to restore you to a relationship with God. And so it depends on faith because only God can take a sinner, forgive him, and make him righteous. And I love what the scriptures say. It says angels literally freak out and throw a party when a sinner repents and trusts in Christ. Like angels don't freak out when you have amazing gains at the gym, right? Like angels don't freak out when you have crazy financial success, but angels freak out and rejoice when God takes you and makes you as righteous as the son of God and you do it by faith. I haven't heard a miracle story this week. Uh, Connor's mom gave her life to Christ. He got to share the gospel with her and, and the scriptures say angels are rejoicing at this miracle because it's the greatest miracle of all. You being righteous by faith. It's the greatest miracle. And last, it depends on faith because anyone can believe. I like how Abraham is the father, not of just the elite, not of just the good people, not of just the Jews. It says he's the father of many nations. And the beauty of faith is even a little three-year-old can believe. The beauty of faith is even an old man on his deathbed can believe. The beauty of faith is the rich and the poor can both believe. The beauty of faith is the rebel and the moral person can believe. It's a salvation that is able to be given to all because of faith. And when we grasp how great this faith is, it gives us a changed attitude and a changed life because of hope. So let's look at the second point. A faith that gives us hope. Let's pick up in verse 18. It says this. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in a faith when he considered his own body, which was as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. But no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for yours also, for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification." And I love that he brought up this word unbelief. See, the opposite of faith is unbelief. See, unbelief believes in God, but it doesn't trust he is good. Abraham had setbacks, trials. His life was difficult. But guess what? Despite what he saw around him, he still trusted that God was good. He had hope. Uh, my wife gave me this definition of hope recently, and I love it. It's this, hope is the faith that God promises us a better future, either in this life or the life to come. It's the promise of a better future. It says Abraham had every reason to be hopeless. He was an old man, and in their culture, if you didn't have an heir, you were a nobody. But God was his living hope, because no matter how bleak life looked, he believed that God could redeem it. Think about it. What happens when people lose hope, when they think there is no chance for their future to be better. They shut down. 
they despair. Their attitude is crushed. They stop taking risks. They feel stuck because they're hopeless. But the good news of the gospel of faith is this. No matter how stuck you feel, no matter how hopeless you feel, just like Abraham, God is 100% able to redeem your life, your story, your eternity. And he comes to you and he says this, I promise I will give you a better future, some now in my presence and the rest forever with me. Pursue me and I will reward you. And what I can give you is way better than what the world can give. And this is why faith gives us hope. You begin to live in the realm of the supernatural. This is why as a Christian, I hate when Christians say, I can't, I can't do that. I can't, I can't change. I can't be, I can't forgive them. I can't, I can't forgive myself. And I say, well, maybe not. But with God, all things are possible. Literally, he can do anything. Telling Abraham to get his 85-year-old wife pregnant is impossible. Even if she has a clean diet, exercises every day, and they have lots of sex, it's not going to happen. But with God, all things are possible. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? So Abraham believed God would do what he said. He trusted God would deliver what he promised to him. So I think the big question for us where we get in a lot of trouble is, what has God promised us? You know, people are funny. You tell new Christians who put their faith in Jesus that, all right, you're forgiven of your sin. Now you're righteous by faith. And then you get the promise of the Holy Spirit. And you're like, isn't that amazing? And they're like, promise of the Holy Spirit? That sounds okay, I guess. And like, they're not even excited. And you see right through them that they're still trying to get their joy and their satisfaction from the things that the world gives them, like likes on social media or more money or just another human to love them or to fit in. And you see through them. And this is why Paul prayed to the Lord on behalf of God's people. He said, God, give him power to understand this promise and just how great it is. Because if you understand this promise, it will change your attitude forever. See, the blessed life is not a ton of financial success and a ton of health. It's character and righteousness and faith and sanctification. That is the blessed good life. But we need to have that aha moment when it clicks just how great this promise is. I've shared this example before, and it's one of my favorite examples of this aha moment. It's from the, from the Lord of the Rings, from the books, and uh, it's about uh, Bilbo Baggins, and uh, he's given this gift of this mithril coat mail. And they tell him it's like really important and special, and he's just like, well, this sounds good, I guess. And so he puts it on, and for him, it's honestly just convenient to him because it's really lightweight. And he's walking with a party of uh, dwarves and elves and wizards, and they're walking, and the sun is shining through, and it shines on this mithril coat mail, and they're like, hey, what is that under your, what is that under your shirt? Uh, Bilbo, and he's like, oh, this whole thing? I mean, it's cool, I guess. It's like this mithril thing that these, these guys gave me. And they're like, bro, you literally have no idea. That's the rarest substance in all of Middle Earth. It's harder than diamonds. And literally, that makes you the richest person in all of Middle Earth. Like, all the real estate combined, you are richer than that person. And Bilbo has his aha moment. And Christian... This should be true of us. You have the best thing in life. 
Like we know real estate is a hot commodity in Northern Colorado. Like everybody wants a piece of it. But if you have the promise of the Holy Spirit, real estate moguls have nothing on you. Do you realize you have this promise? You might not see it all now, but it is coming. Do you trust him at his word? Do you have hope? Do you believe you have a better future that's coming your way? And maybe you still don't understand this. You're like, yeah, Keith, that sounds nice. But honestly, I still just want more likes on social media. I want more security and money, fame and approval. I just want a little more comfort in my life. So the big question then is this, how do we enjoy this gift, this free gift that comes by faith, this promise of reconciliation with God? And I think the answer is to grow in our faith. I love that the text says Abraham grew in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And when you look at Abraham's life, he really grew through three stages of his life. He had the call, he received the promise, and he also had the offering. And similarly, church, we're all going to have these three stages of life continually. And if you want to grow in your faith, you're going to have to respond to all three of these stages with faith. So let's look at the call. I was just reading about this this morning. Abraham's call was to leave his land, to leave his family, to leave security, to leave comfort. Uh, Scholars say that it might have been like around Iran and that this time it was like this fertile crescent where if you lived where Abraham was from, there's a good chance you are going to get rich and have a great life. But God comes to Abraham and he says, leave, leave this land of your mother and father and go to the land I will show you. And you know how this is so hard, why this is so hard? It's going to take faith to leave. Why? Because you were only going to leave if you believe God is better than the thing that you're leaving, that God is going to be with you and that his presence is better than any life without him. So it's going to take faith to leave things behind. Uh, A commentator on this said, see, whatever the non-negotiable is in your life, that's actually your God. I run into a lot of Christians who say, hey, here's the reality. Like, I'll follow God, but I'll never leave my hometown. I'll never move out of my parents' basement, or I'll never leave what's familiar and comfortable. And I would say they don't have faith in God. Their God is familiarity. It's comfort It's family, and they need to put their faith in God or they're going to miss out on the good things that God has for them. I run into a lot of Christians who say, you know, I believe in God, but I'm never going to share my faith with anybody. That's just awkward. It makes people uncomfortable. They have a non-negotiable, right? The non-negotiable is I don't share my faith. And so I'd argue their God is not the God of the Bible. It's the God of approval of others, and they're going to miss out on seeing other people come to faith in Jesus. And here's the good news. There's two kinds of evangelism in the Bible. There's Philip evangelism. Drake and Brittany do it all the time. They know the Bible. They sit people down. They walk them through the scriptures. They lead them to Jesus. That's Philip evangelist. And then there's Andrew evangelist, which I like too. Andrew evangelist was just, hey, come and come to my church and check this out. I love you. I don't really understand this very well, but I love you, and I think you should come. And you guys know, I think more people get shared by Andrew evangelism than Philip evangelism, right? And so everyone in here can invite someone to a church or a small group. And I would say you're missing out unless you do this. 
Uh, another thing, uh, people approach God and say, yeah, you know, God, I'll follow you. I'll make you God, but I'm never going to be generous with my money. Like, this is my money. I'm not going to give to the church. I'm not going to help people who are poor. This is mine. I worked hard for it. So what's their non-negotiable? It's money. And their God is money. But notice Abraham didn't question the call. Like he didn't say, Abraham, go. And Abraham was like, well, God, I'll follow you only if Canaan like checks all the boxes, right? Like beach, check, mountain, check. Uh, okay, good, good, good gardening, great. No, God said, go. And Abraham said, where? That is the life of faith. See, we grow when we answer the call because when we leave comfort and security and we step out on faith, we get to experience God being faithful, Like Peter walked on water. He got to experience that. He went out by faith. He got to experience God's faithfulness. And this is what grows our faith, church. When we step out, it's risky, but then we experience God's faithfulness over time. Faithfulness of God grows our faith. So my question to you, church, is have you made Jesus your Lord? Have you answered the call When you make him Lord, it means you have no more non-negotiables in your life. Do you believe that Jesus said what Jesus said is true, that the only way to find your life is to lose it and make him Lord? And as long as you remain Lord, you're going to be a mess and you're missing out on the joys of making Jesus your Lord. All right, so Abraham had to leave. That was the first way that he grew. And that's the first way we have to grow. Answer the call. And the second way that Abraham grew in his faith was the promise. God promised Abraham a child. And I think John Randall told me he had to wait 25 long years to receive this promise. Can you imagine the pain of waiting for something that long, something that you wanted so bad? That's hard for us today. Did you guys know that God promises a better life for you partially now and then forever fully? And we have to wait for things to get better. And this is painful. And this is hard. Abraham waited. He suffered. He had setbacks. But he kept trusting that God was good. He didn't go home. He didn't go back to Iran. He stayed and he trusted. And John's going to talk about suffering next week. So I'm not going to get into it. And he's going to tell us how to do it well. And so you're going to want to come back next week. It's going to be an amazing sermon as we get, look at Romans chapter 5. Uh, but for now, I would say this. Run to God, even when it hurts. Enjoy his presence, even when everything around you is falling apart. And remember, you do have the best thing. And there will be a better future for you in the end. And the third part of Abraham's life was the offering. So think about this. Abraham left his, his land, traveled all the way to Canaan, waited 25 years old, 25 years for a kid. His son grew up, Isaac, this miracle child. And then God said, oh yeah, take Isaac up onto Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Can you imagine that kind of faith to go up on the mountain and trust the scriptures say, since God promised this, he will probably raise Isaac from the dead. That's how much Abraham trusted in the goodness of God. And this is the life of faith. It never stops. I'm so bothered by the church. Some people think if you give a profession of faith one time at youth camp, at a summer camp, when you were a little kid, you're good. Like you don't need to be a part of the church. You don't need to use your gifts. You don't need to be generous. You're like, 
Honestly, I'm good. I just made a profession when I was 12, so everything's good. But this is not faith. This is wrong. Faith is ongoing, and it never stops until Christ returns. I was even thinking, if you died and went to heaven, you still have faith, because you have to have faith that Jesus is going to still raise the dead, and it hasn't happened yet. So even when you go to heaven, I think you still have to have faith. And so faith won't stop until the resurrection from the dead. I could be wrong on that. Don't, don't take me, you know, as a heretic on that, but that's what's going on in my head. Okay, faith never stops. All right, we have to continually offer up our lives and the things in our lives so we can experience and know that God is better than everything else. And here's some of the things that we tend to hold on to that we need to offer up. I already brought up money. Uh, I think we hold on to money so tight, we think it can save us and that we just, we're not generous and we don't have faith in God's promise that says it's better to give than receive. You really want to be blessed? Be generous. And we're like, "Mm, I don't know if I have faith in that promise. I kind of feel like, Lord, it's better to receive and bless myself than bless others. And so we have to have faith and we have to offer offer up our money, which is, uh, for me, I can't live in crazy amounts of death. I have to be generous with my money. Every time I get that paycheck, I have to look at it and I have to offer it up to God and say, God, the only way I'm going to have financial peace is if I'm generous. This is so hard. This hurts. But God, I trust your promise. I trust you. Uh, Another thing that we have to do continually is offer up our career. And our culture identity can get so tied around our career that we can't even take a day off. We're so absorbed in our job, which is why I love that God gave man the Sabbath. He said, I don't want your job to be your identity. You need to offer up your job and have some fun, have a day off and enjoy the Lord. I know for parents, we have to offer up our kids. I had had an old man recently come up to me and said, hey, if you really want to bless your kids and love your kids, you need to put your marriage first. And I thought about that. I'm like, that's really hard. Like naturally, it's so easy to love your kids. They're so cute. They're helpless. You know, they're so fun. They can be challenging, but it's really easy to love your kids, but it's hard to love your spouse, right? Just ask my wife. She's had to put up with me for like nine years, but that promise that if you want good kids, you put your marriage first and you have to offer up your kids to the Lord and say, God, you're a better parent than me. I trust that you can change their heart where I can't. And here's the reality, church. Offering things up hurts. Uh, There's a story of Elizabeth Elliot, the great missionary, and she was coming back from the mission field, and she was on furlough, and she went to this Scottish ranch, and there was this sheep that had all these parasites uh, and insects all over its body. And uh, they took this sheep, the good shepherd did, and he had to put it in a stock tank of antiseptics. And since it was all over its face and in its ears, Uh, the shepherd had to take the sheep and continually dunk the sheep and hold it underwater. And the sheep's just freaking out, like trying to come up for air. And then the shepherd just shoves its head back down, comes back up. And in that moment, Elizabeth Elliot prayed and she said, God, would you ever hurt me to heal me? And she felt God speak to her in that moment. And she heard God say, yes, but it's because I love you. And so no matter what you offer up, church, It's nothing compared to what God offered up for you. Abraham walked Isaac up onto the Mount Moriah. And when he got to the top of the mountain, God said, don't lay your hand on the boy. I know that you have faith in me because you are willing to give me your one son. 
And God provided a lamb, which was a foreshadow that some 2,000 years later, a father would lead another son up onto a mountain. And scholars say it was the same exact mountain, Mount Moriah. And Jesus went to the cross for us as the lamb of God to die for our sins, to make us righteous, to restore us to God, to give us hope and the promise of a better future. And Jesus is saying to all of us, come, receive believe in the free gift and I will make you an heir. And this heir, this promise is better than anything that the world has to offer. And so church, how do we offer up our lives? Because God offered up his son for us. So we can offer up anything gladly. And I'm gonna close out just with some helpful applications for us to grow in our faith and grow in hope. Number one is going to church. This is hard. Going to church is hard. But you know what this is? It's offering up your time and autonomy to be in community. And I would argue that you won't have peace and purpose until you make Christ and his church a priority. Have faith that this is the way to an abundant life. Number two, it's giving of your time, your treasure, your talents. And this is offering up your security. And like I said earlier, you're not going to have financial peace until you offer it up to God. And have faith that it's better to give then receive. Have faith that giving is the way to the abundant life. Next is forgiving others. This is ongoing and painful, but this offers up our comfort. Forgiveness hurts. I think it's one of the most painful things you will ever do is to forgive someone that you love who hurt you. I mean, just ask Jesus. It's costly. It hurts, but it's worth it. It leads to redemption, and you won't have peace in your life or in your community unless you're willing to continually forgive and offer up your comfort. And we need to have faith that forgiveness is the way to the abundant life. And next, we need to be a praying people, church. Praying is offering up control. It's saying God can do more than me. I have faith in God. But isn't it funny we spend more time on our phones and social media than actually in prayer? I was just convicted of this. Like, I literally have faith that social media will make me happy. And that my life will be better when I sit down and just relax. And God says, pray without ceasing. I will move in a mighty way. So we need to have faith, church, that this is the way. And lastly, church, we need to read the word. We need to be a people to grow in our faith. We have to read the Bible. And reading the Bible is offering up how we want to live our lives. And it's conforming our lives to God's word and making Jesus Lord. And we need to have faith that this will lead to an abundant life. And guys, it might, off, it might be really hard to offer up all these things. And so I just want to close with this promise from Luke 18, 27. It says this, but he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, this life of Abraham, this life of faith. And God, we pray individually that we could be a people who trust that you are good, that your word is what gives us true life. And Lord, for everyone in here who's struggling with faith and we put our faith in the wrong thing, God, I pray you give us power from on high to understand 
that putting our faith in you is way better, that you are a good God. You are merciful and just and slow to anger. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.